a Bitcoin. Bitcoiners, I just got off with Rob Hamilton. He is an awesome Bitcoiner out there that has been spreading Bitcoin knowledge all over Clubhouse and Bitcoin Twitter spaces. And Rob is no stranger to Bitcoin Magazine, but this is in podcast that is talking about his first article. This article dives into why the physical world has not progressed as far as the digital world. So we are all living here in 2021 and technology is everywhere, especially software, SaaS, Silicon Valley. That is what is driving growth. You look at the FANG companies and they are the majority of the S&P 500, but the physical, the commodity manufacturers, the car companies, anything beyond just software, it hasn't really performed the same. And Rob thinks part of it is broken incentives. Rob thinks part of it is fiat money and money printing. This article dives into what is wrong with the current system, how Bitcoin fixes it. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation with Rob Hamilton. Bitcoiners, I am sitting across from Rob Hamilton, someone who's been putting out amazing thought leadership in the space, mostly in audio form in a variety of chat rooms across the interwebs. But I think most notably, maybe, is in this amazing article that you put together for Bitcoin Magazine that got a ton of attention across the Bitcoin space. That's why you're here on the podcast to chat. Rob, you just put together, I think, a very concrete way to summarize a lot of the big ideas that Bitcoiners have been discussing and thinking about for a while. And you just really put it together in a fantastic article. So y'all check it out. It's going to be in the show notes, but let's just dive into this topic first. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast? Sure thing. Hey, everyone. My name is Rob Hamilton. I guess my Bitcoin journey starts back in 2014. A friend told me about it, kind of disregarded it, as many of us have with our Bitcoin journey. A couple months later, though, my friend told me like, oh, there's now this thing. I'm going to explain a funny story here. Like there's a thing called Dogecoin and you can mine it on your computer. It's really cool. So I started like with my graphics card as a gamer in my room, like playing with Dogecoin. And I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of fun and silly. And I was living in Westchester at the time, working in New York City. And I looked up like, oh, are there like Bitcoin meetups in the area? And sure enough, I found this thing called BitDevs which is like the predominant Bitcoin developer meetup in 2014. And it was really interesting because I was not a programmer at the time. Since then, I've done a lot of self-teaching and like learning about doing more formal programming. But going to a room and seeing like 30, 40 people and going through GitHub pull requests and going down this whole rabbit hole of how like Bitcoin as a technology operates underneath the hood and just being quiet and listening to very smart people. It was very refreshing to be in a room and being like, oh, I'm the dumbest person in this room. And this is amazing. Like I could just be surrounded by people who could drop so much knowledge. And it was really exciting to me and understanding this technology. And I started with my mobile wallet, handing out like 10 million sats to people at work back when Bitcoin was at like 250 bucks being like, hey, isn't it so cool? I just sent you money over the internet. And of course, almost only one person held onto their wallet years later. But yeah, like Bitcoin has kind of consumed a lot of my attention since then. It was something that it was never like my, my full-time job or anything, but it was something that always I was really interested and passionate about. I would always follow along with the project. And over the past few months, actually probably during COVID lockdowns, when I had a lot more free time, I started going on this app Clubhouse where people would just talk about Bitcoin. And I quickly realized that like this is a great place for me to have conversations about Bitcoin, which really 
you know, I was a lurker on Twitter. I kept mostly quiet, but being able to have long form audio conversations with people really did a lot of great things for me to be able to understand how Bitcoin works even more, being able to meet more Bitcoiners. I was in Miami back in June was an incredible time being able to meet and like network with Bitcoiners. It's such an empowering, fun feeling. And yeah, I had some ideas that were floating around and I decided that uh, I'd try to give back a little bit to Bitcoin. I have to give full credit to this interview that Eric Weinstein had and Peter Thiel, which was really, really, really exciting. And I saw that there was an opportunity to tie it into Bitcoin. So that was kind of where I took the article. Yeah, well, I, just a couple of things I want to comment on. First and foremost, it's incredible going to a BitDev meeting. And here's me. I host a Bitcoin podcast. I work for a Bitcoin media company. I've put on conferences. And then I'm sitting in SF BitDevs pre-pandemic. There's Ben Woosley, Greg Maxwell, Jeremy Rubin, all arguing about BIPs. And then Alex Leishman. And he's the one who's moderating it. And I'm just sitting there just hands held like this tightly holding on to my drink, just not saying nothing, not saying nothing. So that's <laughs> right. how freaking intimidating those bit does meetups are, but it's awesome. And then on the flip side, like getting on the clubhouse, it's amazing how like the right formula will help you socialize. And then you just tap into this Bitcoin community and then the pilgrimage, which is the Bitcoin conference. Miami is awesome. I'm looking forward to next year. There's other pilgrimages as well. I think Bitblock Boom is one of those as well, but just meeting Bitcoiners in person, like that's that last thing. And this community makes me bullish. And, you know, before we get into this specific topic, it's just, I guess you kind of talk about like what has been lagging in the world and the type of innovation we haven't had. That's a big part of this, this idea. But Bitcoiners on the flip side kind of make me bullish on we can write that ship and you can see it in the community. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's this one thing where Bitcoin is this really abstract concept if you only interact through it over the internet via Twitter conversations, you feel this different energy when you're surrounded by people. And it's not that you have to drop your guard. You just don't have to spend a bunch of time thinking about, oh, I need to explain and justify why I believe Bitcoin is an important technology. Like You're able to have deeper conversations once you have that alignment of ideas, which I think is something that as someone who I wish I got to speak and be with Bitcoiners more often. It's something that I'm lacking and I find it to be really refreshing when I get to sit across the table and have conversations and drinks with Bitcoiners. You get to have more interesting conversations as opposed to just justifying, is Bitcoin going to succeed? Will the mass culture adopt it? Right? Like, Will people spend it? Years, How high is the price going to go? <laughs> right. I feel like th those conversations are just so... They're important to have. And as you're learning, I think those are important things that you want to be really critical of and start thinking and evaluating. But the meat of the conversation, the real interesting stuff is just kind of, let's just assume for a moment that Bitcoin has won. I'm not taking it for granted that it's a guarantee, but I think that's where the more compelling conversations are to be had is, okay, we're in a future where we're in a hyper-Bitcoinized world. What next? Right? Like, like, what do we do? And I think that's one of the prompts for why I decided to write the piece is because Fixing the money does a lot, but I think there's other problems and conversations to be had around how do we restructure a society that I think in many ways, there's a common feeling independent of your political ideology of failing institutions that we're in a place of great uncertainty at the moment. And like, how do we build forward, right? Like, how do we go forward? Because taking down the Federal Reserve, I think is a noble cause that I greatly align with and stopping central banking. I think it's a very, like, it's really important. But there's so many other things in the world outside of the money. And how do we continue the conversation past that? 
So the title of the piece, and we've been kind of jumping around this, is why has the physical world not progressed like the digital? You know, I think being in COVID land now, just we've all been kind of exposed to how to socialize on the internet and how to kind of bridge those, the physical barriers that have been put up in the world that didn't, you know, used to be so obvious pre-COVID. And it's obvious that the internet is a magical, amazing place, right? And so much innovation has kind of come from it. But when you look around at like the visions of the future outside of the internet and the internet connectivity and like the power of fiber and stuff like that, you know, we haven't gone that far and maybe I'm just being ungrateful or a dick, but you know, I think you kind of agree with that. I know Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein agree with that. Can you talk a little bit about their conversation and then how that tallies into this problem that you've have identified in the piece? Absolutely. Yeah. So just to initially start, if this conversation is interesting to you, there is a three-hour YouTube interview between Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel. And the name of the YouTube video, it's episode one of Eric's podcast, The Portal. And the name of that on the YouTube, you can find it is An Era of Stagnation and Universal Institutional Failure. And it's a three-hour conversation where it fascinated me. It was actually recorded in July of 2019. So six months before COVID hit. And I think there's a really interesting conversation to have now that everything's totally changed. And what really compelled me to write the article is in this three-hour interview, the ending of the gold standard in Bitcoin is not mentioned once. They have a three-hour conversation about institutional failure and great stagnation. And Bitcoin's not even part of the conversation, which I found to be a really compelling piece to be like, okay, there's more to start looking at here and starting to evaluate, right? And for when it comes to like the stagnation piece, traditionally, like a very orthodox view is that we live in this world of incredible technology and great opportunity and future. And we're going through rapid innovations and we're almost on the end of, you know, technology is moving too fast. And Peter Thiel describes it as like an accelerationist view of like, we have to be careful of the AI. The consensus view of what most people think is that like AI is going to take over the world and we have to be really careful about that. And what Eric and Peter discuss in this conversation is that it's probably more likely on the other end. And they break it into two camps, right? Because to give credit to where it's due, the world of bits, semiconductors, communications, like the whole world of the internet and technology on the silicone layer has massively had progress, obviously, since the 1970s, right? This is mostly you could accredit it to this thing called Moore's Law, which is every two years, the number of transistors you can fit on a computer chip doubles and the cost gets cut in half. And that's why our parents' computers, you know, were very old, clunky, inefficient, and expensive compared to what we're able to do now. And I make an anecdote in the article that the Apollo 1 mission that you know, went to the moon had less computing power than a graphing calculator you would get as like a sophomore in high school, right? And thinking about the fact that we're holding all these big, crazy celebrations because Richard Branson and, uh, is launching himself into space and Jeff Bezos launching himself into space. And it's like, yeah, but you have like 5 million X computing power. It's almost like easy mode, right? And I'm not a physicist. I'm not an aeronautical engineer, right? I don't want to take for granted what has changed. But the fact that we send ourselves to the moon in 1969, it makes you question in the world of physical development, we haven't had that huge step function. And Peter Thiel has this really interesting way of phrasing it, right? Is that we live in a Star Trek universe where we've put all of our attention into building the supercomputer. You know, when Picard says computer, you know, where is this person, right? Or computer, how far away from this, right? And it was like super futuristic and cool because this computer had all of the answers. It actually seems kind of antiquated and quaint compared to like everyone having a supercomputer in their pocket with our smartphones, right? 
but we don't have the holodeck. We don't have the replicator. We don't have the warp drive. We're almost kind of like trying to reconcile the fact that this one element of technology has accelerated so far ahead of everything else. And we're kind of trying to understand where everything else, which has largely been stagnant in the world of atoms, how do you reconcile that, right? And Eric Weinstein has a perspective of it on uh, if you were to walk into a room today and you removed everything that had a screen, is there anything really different between a room today and a room in the 1970s outside of aesthetic tastes? And that was a really compelling point was that looking through family albums and stuff that like the house that my grandfather built and I grew up in largely looked the same except for the TV size and like maybe some like furniture aesthetics, but there hasn't been a huge step function compared to like, my grandfather and the home he grew up in had massive like changes in orientation and technology right through the industrial revolution and i think there's a lot of branches to have off in that conversation but that's one of the main pieces and the thrust of my article is that the world of bits has greatly accelerated and atoms have stagnated and the one actually the way i tied into bitcoin funny enough is with bitcoin miners because if anyone follows the silicon space with bitcoin miners the s9 miner which came out in 2017 took 90 watts of energy to generate one tera hash a second, a million hashes a second. The S19J, which came out in August of this year, August 2021, uses 30 watts to use one tera hash. So in three and a half years, they've been able to increase the efficiency of that silicone by 66%, right? Going from 90 to 30 tera hashes, right? From an energy efficiency standpoint. But anyone, and this is kind of like looking over the edge, so to speak, anyone who's in Bitcoin mining now will tell you that the current generation hardware isn't going to have this massive step function upward for the next generation of Bitcoin miners, because we're actually getting a point now where the circuitry in all of the Bitcoin mining chips, the five nanometer distance is actually hitting against the edges of known physics, where electrons can start jumping from one circuit to the other, and you start getting unreliable circuits. So even the world of bits is starting to hit a wall of stagnation and what's possible. Well, I think, again, a ton, a ton to unpack there. I think that your conclusion that the growth that bits has really kind of carried is going to be slowing down and part of that is part of the and what i would say is part of the broken incentive structure of the current system which is like if you look at apple what's their incentive their incentive is to take my iphone 10s and obsolete it in less than four years right but on the flip side you mentioned how the s9 is 66 percent less efficient than the a modern bitmain asic but at the same time, almost every S9 is still plugged in. It's found a home where it's yeah. actually economically feasible. So like Bitcoin actually, it presents an opposite incentive structure away from like wasting the innovations in bits. And actually, I think it's going to help us squeeze more out of it because we're not going to have this incentive to have planned obsolescence through the need to continue having growth, which is a big part of your article, which is this idea of the embedded growth obligation. But before I dive into that, because that's pretty freaking heady, I kind of want to just take a quick step back and like, let's oh, just do. tease yeah. out like, what is the world of bits? And what is the world of atoms? And I think maybe we should have started with this. But like, I think you got pretty close to explaining both, but maybe just like really concretely define both just so it's super clear for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My apologies for not starting off there. I'm learning as someone who hasn't really written much before that you look at your own words and you read your own article, you know, dozens of times, you forget how to like go through that whole process and like step through step by step. But the way I would view it as, and the way it's framed in this longer interview between Eric and Peter is the world of bits is the world of semiconductors, the world of chips, right? The, the, what we can modernly view as technology, right? If you're talking to someone who's under the age of 40, they're thinking of technology. They're not thinking of supersonic jets. They're not thinking of 
what is the latest like going on in nuclear fission? Like they're not like they're, they're thinking about what's going on in their phone and what's plugged into their computers, right? All of that silicone is the world of bits and the world of atoms would be fundamentally everything in the physical world, right? I think there was an interesting inflection point post-World War II where we spent so much of our intellectual capital developing nuclear weapons and putting rockets at the tip of those nuclear weapons to send them anywhere we want to in the world. And once we were able to send nuclear weapons and blow up the world 10 times over, there was almost kind of a feeling of like, okay, we're done here. This world of like the physical reactions had this large drop-off and diminishing returns where we started looking for where that evergreen pasture was. And that's where bits come in with Moore's law, right? Being able to have great efficiency jumps every two years guaranteed. Okay. That makes sense. So just to like set the framework here, 1970 era is where we start seeing this divergence between bits and atoms and really a massive stagnation in the world of atoms. You know, you look back to 1970 homes, the Eric Weinstein example is that you subtract the screens, pretty much everything else is, is in the same state. So they had air con, they had insulated windows at that point, like maybe it wasn't as like tight or clean. I don't know. You could argue maybe they're better. Who knows? So we're at this position where there's this divergence things start getting kind of weird and our institutions start failing. But at the same time, the institutions are forced to act in a certain way, even to the detriment, right? And that's where, again, this embedded growth obligation, which perfectly is an acronym, is ego. So it's very interesting. Like these institutions have this ego that's a problem. But let's talk about embedded growth obligation. What is it? And then like, let's put it into context. Yeah, so... I think it even, and I wish I put this in the article, thinking about this more now, in the post-World War II order, where the Allied powers had won, there was this coming together of an idea of that we now have the capability of causing mass destruction with nuclear weapons. And the best way to stave that off is for everyone to be economically interdependent with each other, right? This is an idea of if we're trading and we're all growing together, we're less likely to have violence. And this is a common theme that comes up in the interviews that you have two poles, violence and growth. And if, as long as you can organically generate growth, you're able to stave off violence. So embedded growth obligations, as defined by Eric, is the idea of how fast does an institution need to grow for it to honestly maintain its positions? And this, could, like as you said, it could be thought of as like the ego an institution has in its own right, where this is the idea of the institution operating in the world and how does it interact with everyone else? And just to level set what an institution is, right? Because I tried to define the term to make it like understandable. It's not just your government. It could be your church. It could be your media. It could be your universities. It could be a corporation, right? Like there's many branches of like these mediating sense-making organs and how us as individuals come together and organize in a society is how I would package the general idea of what an institution is. And embedded growth obligations is this idea that all of these larger institutions that have control in the world have this implicit assumption buried underneath them is that there needs to be a certain base level growth rate for them to be happily maintained. And I use an example in the article of university professors and grad students. If you have one professor of a department and they have 10 grad students, let's say half of them want to go on and become professors themselves. That means that you now need to find out of those five grad students who went to go on and be professors, you need now need to find 50 students to be able to sustain that. And in the post-World War II era, 
that was a really easy thing to do. College wasn't really that crowded out yet. It was very easy to have a bunch of new people in the sending upper middle class and lower middle class going in and finding a way to get a great path to success by going to college, right? And over time, what you start having happen though, is it almost starts turning into a pyramid scheme because unless every single person in the country is going to become a grad student, you can't organically have this ascending hierarchy of undergraduates on top of graduates onto professors and PhDs. Like you can't do that forever because at some point you hit a wall in being able to organically generate that growth. And that's where embedded growth obligations come in. And then to tie it into a concrete example with universities in the United States now, US student loan debt is not dischargeable. You go to school, you take out student loan debt, that money goes to the university. If you look at graphs of a number of administrators per student, that's massively taken off since the 80s. I think in 2002, 2003, student loan debt across the country was $300 billion. It's now $1.7 trillion. And anyone who's empirically looking at the data of what happens to your salary when you leave a college university, you're not seeing a massive uptick to justify that expense anymore. And this is a perfect idea of an embedded growth obligation where the institution of education is no longer serving individuals in the idea of getting a better education. It's now gone to how do you best perpetuate education as an institution, putting as much money through education as possible and turning almost parasitic instead of properly serving the common public. It's just turned into a means of being able to generate money and being able to extract value out of our youngest and the ones that are most likely you know, the youngest in the future. We're basically mortgaging the future to bring money into the present, which is another branch into the article. But that's how I would kind of talk about an embedded growth obligation. All right, Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor. This show is brought to you by Ledin.io. I have been super, super impressed with the guys over at Ledin. I've actually known the co-founders, Adam and Mauricio, for a very long time. I've had the pleasure to watch them build Ledin up from a tiny, tiny startup to now a super impressive institutional grade Bitcoin and crypto lender. Y'all, I'm so impressed with these guys. They are offering some of the best rates out there. I don't think anyone even comes close to touching them. You can get 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin that you deposit into Ledin interest accounts, and you can get 8.5% on USDC deposits. I mean, I know all the competitors. They're not even close. If you're going to put your crypto and your Bitcoin into an interest account, Ledin is by far the best. And on top of that, like I said, these guys are hardcore Bitcoiners and they know the products and the services that Bitcoiners want and appreciate. They come up with B2X. It allows you to put your Bitcoin in. They leverage it up and you can, with one click of the mouse, get twice the exposure to Bitcoin. So if you're super bullish, Ledin has you covered with a super, super easy way to get leverage with B2X. And then on top of that, they know that Bitcoiners care about your reserves. They know that Bitcoiners don't like under-reserved and not full-reserved financial institutions. So they are pushing the frontier in transparency in the digital asset lending space. And they are the first digital asset lender to do a full proof of reserves and proof of attestation through a Mariano LLC, a public accounting firm. So the letting guys, they know what Bitcoin is like. They are legit. I encourage you guys to check them out. Do your own research and go to ledin.io. That is L-E-D-N.io and learn more. 
Bitcoiners, I want to tell you about the Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium market intelligence newsletter. This is a no-fluff, hard-hitting, incredible newsletter going deep into the market, helping you understand what's happening with derivatives, what's happening on-chain, what's happening in macro, what's happening with the narrative, and what's happening with the tech. My man, Dylan LeClaire, is an absolute savant. He is making his name known in the Bitcoin community, getting shout-outs left and right, getting on podcasts left and right, and him and his team are bringing you everything that you need to know about Bitcoin. You don't even have to be on Bitcoin Twitter. You can ignore every other newsletter. This is the newsletter to rule them all. Go over to members.bitcoinmagazine.com. Sign up today. And if you use promo code MACRO, you get a full month for free. You have nothing to lose. What are you waiting for? Sign up. See the incredible work that Dylan and his team are putting out. And if you don't like it, just unsubscribe. You don't pay a dime. But if you do, you know, it's going to be well worth the sats in investment in understanding Bitcoin and gaining the confidence to continue to invest in Bitcoin and making the right moves around Bitcoin. And it's going to be well worth every single Satoshi. Again, can't recommend it enough. That is members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code macro. Do it today. So the university example is pretty interesting, but I also really liked your example of IBM and stock buybacks. Let's dive into that one just because I think the numbers paint a very clear picture on how parasitic this is if tuition prices by themselves aren't enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny enough, I actually was a former employee of IBM and I left in uh, June of this year. My team personally, we did great innovation and did great things. It's a company of 300,000 employees though. So this isn't a commentary on what I was doing at IBM, but just to the general macro framework of a large company like this. So since 1995, IBM has spent $200 billion, $800 million in stock buybacks. If you look at the current valuation of IBM, the market cap of the company, only $125 billion. They've spent 1.5x of the company's entire value over the past 25 years on stock buybacks. And I think this is a great example of just massive capital misallocation and wealth destruction to be able to point to and say, if you've spent that much money and just buying back your own shares, I think there's a good conversation to be had of how does this happen? And I think this goes to the earlier point you were making about why do we have such weak leaders today in our institutions? So within IBM, there's almost a prisoner's dilemma that forms. Large publicly traded companies the executive team, the C-suite, get compensated on stock options. And with stock options, if increasing the stock price is your path as a corporate executive to be able to get an outsized pay return, you have two options. Do I shepherd moonshot projects that may take 15 to 20 years to pan out? Remember, IBM was one of the original innovators for the whole semiconductor revolution and, and bringing PCs to the home. But do you do moonshot projects that may take decades to pan out? long after you retire? Or do you take your existing cash flow, the goose that lays the golden egg, so to speak, and take that and just take that cash into the market and buy your own shares back, which is almost a market signal of saying, we have no better use for this cash, so we're just going to buy back our own stock. Right? There's nothing else that we could be doing right now. There's no capital that we could be allocating more efficiently. And it speaks to this problem of just short-term market incentives, which I think is a conversation Bitcoiners are very familiar with, with 
the fiat economy, being able to distort price signals through money printing and capital disproportionately being flown to people who hold assets, right? This is part of that race of being able to just throw your money somewhere. So you're just going to throw it into your own stock. And to bring it to like the idea of where you have this prisoner's dilemma, if you're a middle-level employee at IBM, are you going to go to your boss and say, hey, I think the corporate team here is really misallocating their capital. We should be getting more of that money to do work and invest on these other projects. That's probably not going to go well. And the reason why is because anyone who's within the management structure of a large company like that, their hope is to get promoted. And they can't get promoted if their boss doesn't like them. And especially if you're trying to be the skunk at the garden party when it comes to executive pay. Because to say explicitly, let's not take all this money and do stock buybacks is basically saying, hey, chief executive officer, could you make less money so we can maybe invest into the future well after you're gone? Not going to be a fun conversation, right? So operating with an institution, you almost have to have the shared lie of everyone needs to be you need to be willing to kind of keep on the charade that you know there's organic growth and that everything is doing well. And this is why we get such bad leaders. And this is not just in companies, this is in politics, in media institutions, right? Like you basically have this prisoner's dilemma of no one can speak the truth. No one's able to actually try and market correct these forces because there's just so much malinvestment built up into the system that you as a member of the organization can't do anything. And the silver lining I bring to this and tie into Bitcoin is that individuals are the one group who are immune from embedded growth obligations. Because if you as an individual, not part of an institution, are able to step forward and say, this isn't going well, I don't think this is right, you don't have to worry about retribution on the other end of it. And I think that's a strength that Bitcoiners have is people who are baseline very independent thinkers that think outside the box, they're heterodox, they're willing to speak their mind. This is a great asset that Bitcoiners have as a culture and a community and being able to try and address these wrongs in the ways that they see that they have power to do so. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, you hit on so many really, really important points, right? And again, like they're trapped. No one is free of their incentives. I think it's a super famous Charlie Munger quote, which is that, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. And like, I think what you spell out is the broken incentives. And, you know, again, you can look, you brought up the IBM, I'll bring up the Green New Deal where you know they're going to be spending supposedly $3 trillion if it passes. And the government economists are saying for every $3 spent, we'll get $1 of growth, right? So, okay, where does the, th- where's the other $2 go? One, and then two. So if those, if like the government people are saying that, then like, what is the number really, right? And it just shows again, like, how is this capital allocation working? And when you have fake price of money, aka low interest rates, so when you start creating this short-term thinking. And maybe you you can go as far as like when you separate store of value from money and you have other assets becoming store of value and needing scarcity, it all just gets really crazy. And I mean, I think that's where Bitcoin presents this opportunity to kind of bring some soundness back to our measure of reality. You know, a lot of people have talked about this, Jeff Booth with the price of tomorrow for turning, maybe it's not about Bitcoin, but it's about the shift in these institutions. I'll send it back to you and like, Again, Weinstein and Teal, they didn't talk about the money. And you're trying to make this connection of how you know it's all about the money. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the inflation conversation is a really interesting point I mentioned in the article that no mainstream economist today... Let me, let me flip this on its head. All mainstream economists today will say that the year-over-year inflation number is 5.4%. None of them are going to mention the M2 money supply and that 30% of all money in existence today has been in the past 18 months. Additionally, 
none of them are going to mention that 75, three out of every $4 have been created since the 2008 financial crisis. And this is a part of these embedded growth obligations and this internal lie that needs to be perpetuated forward when it comes to calculating inflation is a perfect example of economics, which very neatly lines up with Bitcoin. I was listening to the Odd Lots podcast, which is Joe Weisenthal with Omar Sharif, who's a, an investment banker who does very complicated, all of the CPI calculations and doing research on all of them. And it was all of this really complicated math and structuring and organizing the basket of goods. And it's like this very like hidden alchemy almost, right? Whereas if you just ask the simple question that doesn't require a PhD of how many dollars are in the system, like, oh, that's a very juvenile take. Like, you don't understand how inflation works. Like, it's almost like kind of derided as just kind of like a very simplistic view. But at the end of the day, it's the least gameable metric. The idea that you need this priestly class of experts to be able to like go into a back room and shake a bunch of Excel spreadsheets around and, and game what's in the basket and say, well, there's a hedonistic adjustment because our quality of life is better compared to last year. It's all just a lie. It's this entire just elaborate ruse to try and paint this little cover on that, like everything is fine. And this is part of the embedded growth obligation is that if you're an economist and you're working at the Federal Reserve or you're working at a big investment bank, like you heard the expression, you never fight the Fed. What are you going to do? Like tell them that they're liars and then just lose your job and lose your entire social network and all of the capital that's tied into your career and development and growth. Like this is why the incentives are fundamentally broken. And it's a total distortion of price signals. And you bring up a great point with the Federal Reserve and money in general in that the Federal Reserve, I actually called them this article, they're the chief growth officer of the company, of the company of the United States. Because you have this piece where in the research and trying to form this article, trying to bring it back to money, in the United States, since 1971, we've had a 6% compounded annual growth rate, CAGR, which means every year, 6% growth, 6% growth over 50 years. And as we mentioned earlier, in the world of bits, there's some honest growth going on here. Right. Like it's not all illegitimate, but you start looking at the underlying financial system and the debt financing and the debt instruments we use is this way of being able to pull consumption from the future, bring it into the present and have the party now. Right. Economists today say we don't have to worry about paying back that debt later because debt is just money we owe to ourselves, as Paul Krugman would say. Right. It's this total distortion of price signals in gaming the growth number of the GDP of the country. But it's not the same when we're growing like our balance sheet and everything's being blown out. I don't want to avoid going off on another tangent, but I want to, if you have any thoughts there to kind of talk about before I go down that rabbit hole. Well, I mean, again, I think we're living in clown world and we're at peak yeah. clown world where guys like Paul Krugman say, debt is money we owe to ourselves. The reality is, is that savings is money that you earned for yourselves and you saved for yourself, right? That's like how to pass value into the future, not debt. Debt is taking away from the future. So I think that there's just, again, it's just broken incentives, right? Which is why when you are Eric Weinstein or are Peter Thiel and you're having this conversation, it's just ludicrous to not look at what is the thing that is signaling what we should do. And you dive into this too. like, And I think, again, Aaron Siegel, who's a really, really great contributor to Bitcoin Magazine, he said the compounding 2% interest rate, like we don't know how insidious that really is because we don't know what three generations of misallocated schooling is doing, right? Like we have all these people doing one thing and 
maybe we do not need that at all in the economy. Right. And then what's the pain of that unraveling? So like the negative 2%, like in the, where the control of the monetary system or the manipulation of the monetary system like that, it's going to blow up in a way that I think a lot of people is bigger than what a lot of people think. And, you know, it's because the entropy is, is greater too. So I guess I'll end my ramble and I'll pass it back to you. (laughs) Yeah. There is always this hidden cost when it comes to distorting market signals and you're not able to understand what the other reality would have been, right? All we can do now in our control is talk about how can we fix things to move forward. And there's this interesting point when I was researching the article that I hadn't heard before and poking around a bit, no one's pushed back on me yet. 1977 was the first year we had a 30-year bond auction. Before then, it was usually 10 years. I think we had 25 years for a couple years in between 1970 and 1977. But the 30-year debt instrument, I think, is when you combine it with money printing, is this insidious dynamic of perpetual can kicking. Because 10 years is enough time to actually have some sort of accountability loop back boomerang on an individual who's in power. 30 years is become so distant where even if like someone who was in Congress 30 years ago is still there now, they get deflected to a bunch of other problems and a bunch of other circumstances. It's distancing accountability between the action and the consequences. And what I really look at it is like with the Federal Reserve going into the debt markets and interfering with interest rates is we're not actually able to get correct signals, right? We're not able to correct and understand where capital misallocation is occurring. We're not able to understand how we're interfering with the market. And I really view it as this really sick, insidious way where interest rates fundamentally are this negotiation between the present and the future. Meaning that if the interest rate is higher, you're going to be rewarded today for holding into the future And also, the higher the interest rate, the more punished you will be for capital misallocation, because that's your opportunity cost of money. And what's happened is with interest rates being lowered more and more over time, we've reduced that opportunity cost to where you almost just outright incentivize just horrible capital mismanagement. And it's one of these things where I view it as almost like this intergenerational conflict where our ruling class, which are largely silent generation and baby boomers are almost just kind of casting the future generations off into like a financial pyre, right? There's no interest rates. There's no value in saving for tomorrow. You're also laden up with a bunch of debt from college. You can't discharge it. And it's all being served just at the idea of how do we perpetuate growth today? And it's something that I think that as Bitcoiners, the answer is we have to build our own institutions, which I think is where a lot of an interesting conversation is, is how does a decentralized movement organize itself to build new institutions? But I think the one thing we can start with is the institution of Bitcoin. There's only 21 million Bitcoin. There is no inflation. No one has that power. We're all equal. And we use those as like the foundational building blocks for building a better future. Yeah, I love that. And again, it's it's about opting into an alternative system, right? Because if you're stuck in that old system, you always have the ego. You always have this embedded growth obligation, which kind of prevents you from breaking it, right? And Again, it is really sad, the reality of the current generations, but it's at times like this is when you kind of have to just burn it down and start over. And that's where like there's this huge opportunity for Bitcoin. Something that you discussed too is obviously if Bitcoin does play out how we think, Bitcoiners, people who are very early, there's still plenty of time to be a part of that. They're going to be the capital allocators, right? And they're going to be kind of allocating in a Bitcoinized future, which 
it's kind of hard to imagine these days, to be honest, because many of us can't think of moving on from our Bitcoin, right? We're just trying to stack as much as possible, which is the rational thing to do in this present day. But let's just go to like that future. The world is is Bitcoinized, kind of organized around this fair monetary standard where we can just continue to build off of that. What do the capital allocators do? How is it different? Yeah. So I think looking into that future, the ideas of how we're going to structure our Bitcoin, we're already as a large just cultural subset are people that are very fine with delaying gratification, right? If you're holding Bitcoin for a long period of time, you're comfortable with the idea of you're not going to see an immediate return on your asset. And I think what it starts happening is, is that we start investing in things for a future that we may ourselves not be able to fully see, right? Like larger projects, things are going to take years, not quarterly earning statements. And this, we're not going to be caught up in like, you know, what's the stock price today, right? Like it's something that we're going to be very comfortable with like throwing money into an investment and having it take a decade or longer to pan out. From this conversation, the article that I was trying to work on all started on Clubhouse and American HODL would spend a lot of time. We would chat a lot about this idea and we were talking about this interview specifically. We both went back and listened to it. And he did a really great talk at Bitblock Boom about this. And he described it as destroying the one-time Cantillon effect, right? Is that Bitcoiners are going to be this mass receiver of disproportionate wealth from one last go of the money printer, right? In the sense that the collapse of a fiat economy is going to result in Bitcoiners to have disproportionate wealth. And that's kind of a way, it's investment that's well-earned, but in the same way, it's almost like kind of this remnant of a former fiat system. And the responsibility you have is to invest that into a better future, right? And being able to think about what are the larger projects that are going to take a lot of time and a lot of capital to be able to start moving off the ground, whether that's Eric Weinstein has this whole thing about like reinvigorating like physics departments, but going outside into like universities because universities are so far gone, you can't trust them anymore, right? Maybe working with interspace travel, working on anything that maybe formerly had been left outside the box of orthodoxy in traditional society. Like those are the doors and paths that we start exploring to be able to try and correct capital misallocation that's been going on for decades. Bitcoiners, I am so excited to tell you about the Bitcoin 2022 conference. You guys, Bitcoin 2021 was absolutely a smash hit success. It was over 13,000 Bitcoiners coming together, breaking the barriers on who can come together and celebrate freedom, celebrate Bitcoin, and the energy was absolutely electric. Unfortunately, it was just oversubscribed. There's just people flowing out everywhere. And this year, we are learning. We are making the conference bigger and better. We are moving over to the Miami Beach Convention Center, and we are going to be throwing a massive four-day festival for Bitcoin, celebrating Bitcoin, bringing together the greatest minds in Bitcoin. And the greatest businesses in Bitcoin, and lastly, the culture of Bitcoin all together. We have a four-day extravaganza planned for you guys for Bitcoin 2022. Day one is going to be industry day. It is a day where you can buy a special ticket in order to just mingle and make business deals happen. Day two and three is going to be a full-blown Bitcoin conference. This is our main conference. This is going to be on April 7th and 8th. And then lastly, we have the Sound Music Festival Day 4. Imagine going to Coachella, but for Bitcoin. There's going to be very few talks. It's going to be all about the culture of Bitcoin. It's going to be all about hanging with your fellow plebs. It is going to be an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be Bitcoin musicians, Bitcoin artists, 
and all your favorite Bitcoiners and just an amazing environment to party and just see it all, soak it all in and to get people to realize that a Bitcoin world, a world filled with Bitcoin people doing Bitcoin things is the world that they want to live in. That's what Bitcoin 2022 is all about. That is what the Bitcoin conference is all about. That's what Bitcoin Magazine is all about. So it is going to be a celebration of Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners, and this amazing movement that is going to make the world a better place. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Learn more about the Bitcoin conference. Learn more about all the amazing things that are happening in Miami around the Bitcoin conference and buy your tickets. And guess what? If you buy your bit tickets with Bitcoin, you save $100 on all the tickets and $1,000 on the whale pass. So if you want the VIP pass, the, the big kahuna, if you buy with Bitcoin, you save $1,000. That's a lot of stats. So go and do it right now today. Don't wait. Prices are only going up. This is going to be a can't miss event. Bitcoiners, let's take a break from the content. And I want to tell you about Coolbix. Coolbix is an awesome Bitcoin hardware wallet that's been around for a really long time. They are building an amazing Bitcoin wallet called the Cool Wallet Pro. The Cool Wallet Pro is state of the art Bitcoin hardware wallet technology. Its form factor is like a credit card. You can put it into your wallet and it is designed to go with you on the go. So that way, even when you're on the go, you can have the benefit of a two-factor hardware wallet design when you're trying to spend your Bitcoin. So you can have your Bitcoin wallet UX on your phone and make it really easy to scan, decide what you want to do. But then you sign with a cool bit X, which is in your back pocket. It is tamper proof. It is waterproof. It is flexible. It has an awesome secure element in it. And it is a really awesome way in order to have some more flexibility, yet security when you're taking your Bitcoin on the go. I personally am a fan of this idea of making Bitcoin into a medium of exchange and making it into something that people use. I know it's going to take time, but they are working on the UX for making that possible in as secure a way possible. So have some peace of mind. Check out the Cool Wallet Pro from CoolBix. And Thank you to them for sponsoring this podcast. Well, again, I think, you know, where that comes full circle to how we started the conversation, I think one of those big areas is energy production, right? And we've seen the blinding of all fossil fuels. We've seen the quote unquote discrediting and decommissioning of nuclear across the globe. And then we've seen this like allocation into like solar wind, right? Things that make us feel good. It looks yeah. good. It looks like it's like grabbing energy from the environment. You call it fiat energy to some degree. And like, I love the planet. I'm a nature guy. And where Bitcoiners are going to invest is kind of where they're investing right now is, is in energy production and energy utilization. And, you know, again, you can bring up the flaring and mining and that kind of revolution and the huge efficiencies that come from that. And it makes you, again, bullish on how Bitcoiners are going to correct the misallocation and set it straight again. Yeah, I don't think there's any way to over state the potential of what Bitcoin provides to for energy markets as a buyer of first and last resort when it comes to energy production. And I think the being able to monetize energy and understanding, and this is one of the things that I did not understand maybe until the past year or two learning about Bitcoin mining, because I'm not an industrial miner by any means, but just understanding like how energy markets work and how these are all interlinked with each other and how 
fundamentally just the quality of human life is directly linked to how much energy consumption is being done per human, right? It enables more opportunity, more resources. It's something that is often swept aside in modern narratives. And I think it's a huge wasted opportunity. And I think Bitcoin is going to directly financially incentivize correcting those because now you have a source of being able to monetize that energy and bringing a more complete fair energy market to play. I think that's really, really exciting on part of that future. And kind of the early things we're starting to see now with oil and gas companies starting to get more involved with Bitcoin. Compass Mining was working with that nuclear power plant in Ohio, right, to do Bitcoin mining, right? I think we're going to start realizing like how much change is in the couch cushions when it comes to just this energy that's stranded and laying around. And how can we harness that to be able to make our grid more robust? I think it's an amazing opportunity that Bitcoin today provides that great financial incentive for moving forward. I love that metaphor of change in the couch cushion. So it's like the existing (laughs) grid has all of these inefficiencies everywhere that Bitcoin can just help you monetize. And then that we're not talking about like, okay, then what happens to the couch after Bitcoin's been kind of building it out and like incentivizing the spread of the new energy grid. Brandon Quidham in his like super famous article back in the day, I think it was like 2018 these days, that's back in the day, but he dropped the Bitcoin is mycelium article. And in that article, he shows the slime mold and how it outcompeted Japanese architects in, in creating the most efficient network across Japan or across Tokyo or something along those lines. And I, I truly think that Bitcoin is kind of like that virtual slime mold that is going to create the most insanely efficient energy grid infrastructure that we could ever imagine. Yeah. Jordan Peterson talks about how the idea of systems that do not require coercion are healthier and more sustainable than ones that require coercion. And I think ultimately, Bitcoin as a voluntary opt-in system is able to bootstrap a new parallel society almost where there is a like almost an alternative economy and an alternative incentive structure and framework. And I think what's really fascinating about Bitcoin, and I think why it caught Eric's attention a while ago was it was this idea of being able to route around corrupt institutions. The Federal Reserve are liars. The economists are not our friends. They are fleecing the public. And what we did instead of crying about it, I was a gold and silver bug back in 2011, 2012, before I found out about Bitcoin, right? But like, how futile does that feel compared to being able to buy Bitcoin and directly disrupt the whole system. And Bitcoin leveraged technology to disintermediate corrupt institutions with reality that was backed by math and cryptography instead of being backed by word of mouth or at the barrel of a gun. And that's such an incredible, powerful idea that we're just using math and it's voluntary. No one's forcing you to use it. And it's one of these things that I think is such a great case study and example of how do you build a new institution, right? Because even though Bitcoin is just code at the end of the day, there is a social consensus layer that surrounds it that kind of girds the network, right? And that's when we have cultural moments of reflection like 2017 with the fork wars, right? Being able to understand the policy is just a variable. You could change it to 23 million or 100 million or whatever you want to change it to, but that's not going to happen because of the social consensus, right? And the way the software is structured. I think it's such an incredible way. And it's an uplifting story of being able to take agency and sovereignty and being able to have that responsibility and how do you push back and re-grab that control of agency so you're not beholden to corrupt institutions? No, I mean, and I guess just not to correct, but I think it's, there's this social consensus that leans against the hardware consensus. 
because there's this active physical network of hardware consensus. And that is the thing that's actually incorruptible. So the fact that the social consensus is that we rely on this physical network, it's very, very powerful because now it creates like this institution, this physical real institution that also it can't be fucked with by anyone that is like beyond the reach of anyone else. And like, that is the beautiful thing. Like that is the fight against the old system is just saying like, there's this real physical thing that is undeniable. You can't mess with it. And now we get to see them compete. Right. And let's see what happens. Yeah. It's a free market, right? You get to have your system. We get to have our system. And I think this is where the interesting inflection point of like Bitcoin as it continues to succeed and grow, this is where my time diet, like I now have two kids under two years old. I start thinking about the world they're going to grow up in where they always had Bitcoin, right? They weren't at this transition point of between a Bitcoin and a fiat currency that Bitcoin had always been around. We may have fiat currency in 10 years or whatever, but the idea that this isn't a new thing to them is something that's older than them. And I started thinking and looking forward to Bitcoin as a system like for me, hyper-Bitcoinization isn't a success. For me, it's the world that my great-great-grandkids will grow up in, people who I will never meet far down my family tree, is Bitcoin a meaningful tool to be able to make their lives better? And, and this is um, NVK calls like Bitcoin deterministic optimism, right? In the sense that you have this base consensus layer of a society, money, that has now been solved. We no longer need kings. We no longer need armies. We have math that is able to back and support that that fundamental human interaction. How much prosperity can come through in a society when we have a voluntary opt-in currency? I think the future is really, the sky is the limit. And it's literally in the sense that the stars, like we're able to reorganize ourselves and being able to break out of the short-term games of quarterly earning statements and you know trying to appease and jockey for political power, we just went and took it. We went and built our own things. And I think that's such a positive outlook for what the future potential has. Wow. I think that is the most powerful place that we could end this podcast. Rob, thanks for bringing it, man. To all the listeners, you got to read this article. It is going to be in the show notes, but really just going deep into like, why hasn't technology gotten to where it should be, right? Outside of the digital why hasn't everything else gone parabolic as well? And hopefully Bitcoin can fix this. Rob, where can people find you, learn more about you, tease all the good stuff? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Rob Oneham, R-O-B, the number one H-A-M. You can find me on Clubhouse, same username, talking about Bitcoin pretty regularly. Yeah, hoping to uh, anyone who wants to chat, please, my DMs are open, hit me up. I'm happy to have a conversation about this. It's been a fun journey um, starting to finally, after listening about Bitcoin for so many years, writing about it, it's a whole other experience. And I'm really grateful for Bitcoin Magazine for providing the opportunity to publish my work. Yeah, man. Well, hey, we'll publish you again. So don't hold back on us and don't be shy. To all the listeners out there, if you're an inspiring Bitcoin writer, if you've been thinking about Bitcoin, if you've been thinking about the world and how we navigate through that, Bitcoin Magazine is here as a partner, as someone that wants to just amplify the most signal in the Bitcoin community. So don't be scared to hit us up, slide in the DMs, hit me up on Twitter at CK underscore snarks, hit our account up at Bitcoin Magazine. Check out this podcast, read Rob's article, get inspired, give us those five-star reviews, share this podcast with everyone. You know the drill, I won't get into it. Uh, We'll catch you later, Rob. Peace. Take care.